Today's show is sponsored in part by NetRounds. NetRounds software performs active testing and monitoring to ensure your business-critical applications and services are running as expected. Get real-time insights for testing, troubleshooting, and SLA monitoring. Find out more at netrounds.com slash packetpushers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional and the IT professional skill sets. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. My goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Joining me today is Eric Sorensen, who's going to talk with me about a new technology for infrastructure's code called Lyra. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you making time. So I understand you were um, you were at uh, DockerCon last week. Is that right? That's right. Uh, just got back from uh, San Francisco. It was a pretty darn good show, and uh, we learned a lot and had a lot of great conversations with folks that stopped by the booth because uh, Puppet's a sponsor there, and uh, yeah, just lots lots of great connections with uh, different people working in this space. Awesome, awesome, very cool. So um, I guess uh, I've been remiss. I should give you a second to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners. So why don't you just uh, tell folks who are listening a little bit about who you are and what you do and what brought you here? Sure. Uh, so I'm a product manager here at Puppet. I've been working here for about six and a half years, so almost seven. It'll be seven in June. And uh, prior to becoming a product manager, I worked as a developer, uh, SRE, a systems administrator um, for many years down in uh, Silicon Valley before I moved up here to Portland to work for Puppet and worked at lots of uh, interesting places around the Valley, most uh, lately at Apple, uh, running the infrastructure for the MobileMe and iCloud services, where we used Puppet to configure the servers behind the scenes there. And so that's how I sort of got involved with the the project. And it's uh, become a big part of my life for almost the last decade now. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, listeners, if you if you caught up with uh, the previous episode, you know we had a, fo- uh, a, a wonderful guest on from from Public Yasmin talking about uh, a project that uh, was was going on called uh, Bolt, which is a task runner. And uh, joining this month, Eric is going to be talking about another project that he's been working on there at Puppet, and uh, this one more uh, aiming sort of squarely at the infrastructure as code space. So, um, Eric, what is this uh, what is this new project that you're working on? Uh, well, the project's called Lyra. Uh, it's it's uh, spelt L-Y-R-A, but pronounced Lyra. It's a tool for, um, for building out workflows. And that's a very generic thing. And many things involve workflows. But Lyra specifically is an engine for man- provisioning and managing cloud-native infrastructure. And what I mean by that is it's easy in Lyra to describe a set of resources that ought to exist and those resources could be things that exist in uh, a Kubernetes cluster. They could live behind a cloud service. And they can also be uh, tasks or imperative style actions that need to be performed as part, as a, as, as part of a um, code deployment. So it's kind of like provision infrastructure, deploy an application out onto it, and then maybe send a notification like a, a chat ops kind of notification once the deployment is successful. Those are the kinds of primitives that um, it's easy to express in in Lyra and to have the engine figure out dependencies between them and make it make it happen across your infrastructure. Okay, so that's cool. 
Um, so, um, you know, lots of questions swirling in my head at the moment, but I'll have to try and unpack this a little bit to make sense for the, for the listeners. So we don't just go like totally random on them. And although sometimes it's fun just to geek out on the show. Um, but, um, so it sounds like you're pretty squarely in the space where somebody who's familiar with infrastructures, code tools might find something like a Terraform. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah. And in fact, uh, we have as part of the things that you can do with Lyra today, there's a, a bridge that we built to Terraform's provider ecosystem so that you can re- reuse uh, much of the content that's in Terraform since they have, you know, obviously a, a big library of different kinds of cloud services and a very active community, some of which is supported by the vendors and, you know, the, 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 service, the service providers themselves and others are community contributed content. But we didn't think that it made a lot of sense to try and rebuild all that stuff from scratch. Since Lyra is a Go project, just like Terraform is, we're able to build a pretty simple bridge and expose the stuff that's available inside of Terraform uh, to Lyra workflows as well. Okay. Well, I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Terraform has been around for quite a while, and they have managed to um, garner garner, rather, a a fair amount of support in terms of the breadth of their um, providers and as you mentioned, you know, the participation of some of the uh, platforms themselves um, actually, you know, maintaining the provider. I think the AWS provider, for example, is maintained by AWS. So let's help the listeners sort of understand what is different about Lyra than, say, something like a Terraform. Where we know we can use, you know, Terraform providers and leverage that ecosystem. Again, I think a smart move. But what would drive a user to, to choose Lyra over, say, Terraform? I mean, is it a matter of you know, more expressive language or the ability to pull in a, a general purpose programming language a la Pulumi, or is it, you know, something else entirely? It's uh, both of the things that you mentioned, interestingly. So Terraform is tied pretty tightly to uh, HCL, to HashiCorp configuration language, uh, which is a, you know, sort of a DSL that is interestingly really strongly modeled on on puppet originally you know on the original puppet language but it has some you know you have to learn hcl syntax directly to use it and it's it's hard to express some things in hcl and in in the way that terraform makes use of it because of how strongly declarative the guarantees are around terraform it's difficult to do things like in that example i mentioned a minute ago to send one off kind of notifications or more imperative types of actions as part of a deployment, which it turns out is necessary sometimes. And from a puppet perspective, that was what led to sort of our investment and and the creation of Bolt as a task running tool was that people were having these use cases that were really difficult to solve with classic puppet. And so Bolt kind of lets you bridge between uh, ad hoc actions and uh, uh, declarative puppet code. But, but similarly for provisioning and deployment workflows, if there's things that are um, difficult to express in a purely declarative way, it's nice to be able to mix those things with imperative actions. Plus, you mentioned Pulumi, and Pulumi is a you know, great solution. I actually spoke with them last week at DockerCon as well and had, had some really good conversations. Um, there, there, are, there are some similarities between Lyra and Pulumi. They both support TypeScript as a way to uh, describe what you, want, what you want to do. The Pulumi code base and the Pulumi approach is more about managing state in the cloud. They run a service that has, uh, you know, sort of keeps the Terraform-esque state file uh, on their service. And while you can't opt out of that, it's kind of pretty closely tied to the way Pulumi expects to work is to connect up to their service. 
And we think that while that should be a, a viable option um, for a lot of folks, it's tough to have, have that connection out to the outside world and that language can be a little bit simpler than, than what, um, what Pulumi has in, their, in the TypeScript implementation. So Lyra supports both a straight YAML type of uh, configuration, which I think is kind of the lingua franca of cloud-native configuration, for better or for worse, uh, TypeScript, as well as you can write uh, workflows directly as Go plugins. Okay, all right. Yeah, the um, you're absolutely right about uh, Terraform and, and H HCL being you know very very tightly coupled. And although I hadn't really considered uh, the link between HCL and Puppet, I used to do some work with Puppet um, in, in years past. Um, now that you mention it, I could certainly see that um, there are some some certain similarities there. Um, so uh, and, and and it's interesting then that you guys you know you you offer TypeScript. Um, and in YAML, and and you're right about you know YAML, YAML sort of being like everywhere, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> I guess we we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of whether that's better or worse. We can do that some other time. Um, but uh, but that does give users some flexibility in how they want to approach that. The relative difficulty of doing some sort of one-off imperative task um, when you're working with a purely declarative approach like Terraform or, or any of the others, um, and, and as you mentioned, Puppet as well. Is certainly something that I know I've had to work around when I'm creating uh, Terraform configurations or something like that. So it certainly can be challenging. Um, so uh, this is a relatively new project. I think you guys are you haven't been around or haven't made it public all that long, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is uh, I'm, I'm guessing, given you know Puppet's history, this is an open source project that users can can go and look at and and possibly contribute to or participate in. Is that right? Yeah, we'd love to see folks uh, kick the tires on it and contribute, even if it's just in the form of a GitHub issue or you know that it's complaining that something doesn't work. That's a that's a signal in and of itself as a as a product manager. I love to see those kinds of things. Uh, it's available on GitHub. We have a separate that this. Um, if I can just talk a little bit about the open sourciness of this project, it's a little bit of an interesting shift for Puppet as a company, which I think is reflective of some of the changes that we've been seeing in the open source ecosystem more more broadly. It used to be that a lot of times there would be a you know an open source kind of core uh, project that got incorporated into a product, Puppet being example, uh, Chef, there are many others. Uh, and what I think has been really interesting to watch over the last couple of years is the evolution of more multi-vendor and foundation-based uh, development in the infrastructure and in cloud-native space. I think OpenStack kind of started started off this way, and you know Kubernetes and almost all of the Kubernetes ecosystem is either developed a lot in in inside of the cloud-native computing foundation or kind of on the periphery of it. And so Lyra is a really is following that model. We made a separate GitHub organization uh, that's called Lyra Proj that's outside of the Puppet Labs sort of namespace. And so if you go to GitHub slash Lyra Proj, there are all the Lyra related uh, repositories that are that are kept under there. And that allows us to do things like open up the contribution model to more fee more folks than uh, than we could if we were if we stayed inside of the Puppet Labs namespace. Plus, I hopefully, if the project takes off and if people find it useful, if it gets um, accepted into some of the CNCF incubation or sandbox types of programs, then it's easier to transfer ownership and participate in that um, that community a little more broadly than if it was 
uh, underneath a single vendor. Yeah, you make some good points about sort of the evolution of of open source and how things have changed, and you know various business models, you know, like open core or something, you know, support and service type models. Um, and and I agree that uh, there's there there is a, a shift in evolution occurring uh, there. It, I think it's it's still in progress. We'll see how how things shift out. Um, there was an interesting discussion I stumbled upon on Twitter the other day regarding um, you know sort of how how open source licenses don't quite address sort of you know the the SaaS or cloud computing model and and how we anticipate we'll probably have to make some licensing changes in in open source in order to address that both for the for the purposes of the uh, organizations or users who are creating these projects, but also for the pur- for the purposes of those providers who would like to offer um, solutions or services based on on said projects. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how how all that shifts uh, and shakes out. Um, all that's like you know way above my pay grade as an ordinary user, but uh, but it's still fascinating to watch from from the outside. I'm sure that um, you know from your vantage point, you know six six plus years. I think you said it, at Puppet, you've you've seen quite a quite a few shifts in that space and probably have a pretty good feel for how things are shaking out. Uh, I don't know that I have a good feel for it necessarily, but uh, like you, I find it really interesting to watch it. Not quite from the sidelines, but, uh, uh, you know, and and be able to make decisions actually on on projects that we're starting um, for things like, uh, you know, what namespace it lives in, how we how we expect to to uh, to encourage contributions with it. Um, a couple of other interesting related points that um, th- about the about Lyra itself is that we keep all of the uh, conver- design conversations and all of the roadmap stuff out in public. They're all we use the GitHub uh, projects board feature as well as you know just the regular issues and pull requests and that sort of stuff for all of the development all the way back into uh, early UX prototyping when we're looking at you know how the language constructs ought to work try to keep all of that out in the open so that both there's a public record of it as the project evolves over time plus if anybody kind of wants to drive by and 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 drop a comment in there that's it's available to them uh, to to view and and uh, participate in which I think isn't uh, it's been challenging uh, because it's it's easier to just sort of sit in a room with one or two people that you have physical proximity with and hop on a call and get things done. But the benefits of it, I think, will will pay off in time as as uh, people are able to engage at a level that that they wouldn't have if we were just talking in person. Additionally, we're using the um, DCO, the uh, Developer Certificate of Origin, for contributions. Uh, where, which was, you know, had a bunch, had a bunch of really interesting conversations with our legal team about that, and ultimately they agreed that that was a good thing to do. Almost all of the Kubernetes CNCF program uh, projects use uh, DCO sign-offs in your individual Git commits rather than requiring a contributor license agreement, which often has to go through your legal department and that sort of stuff to to be able to accept contributions. So hopefully uh, over time that will make it much easier for people to get started with the project and to to pitch in a little bit uh, and to to help feel like there's uh, not just a, a down you know a a downstream of a vendor but it's actually something that they're uh, invested in and and want to help work on. Well, that's that's really good. I mean, I, I have to I have to give you guys you know kudos for structuring the project in such a way to to really encourage community participation, community involvement, and to make it more than just you know, some code that a company has, you know, thrown over the wall and said, hey, look, it's open source, right? But to rather build consensus and community around it. And I think, you know, personally, when when you can do that, it's not always possible, but when you can do that, 
uh, I do think that you you do see some long term benefits uh, about that. But but we digress a little bit. Interesting discussions, yes. But let's let's get back to Lyra. Sure. Um, so um, you mentioned Lyra written in in in, in uh, GoLang, so we can take advantage without too too much effort of you know Terraform providers that sort of thing. Um, what is the um, what is the overall workflow look like? You know, if somebody wants to um, create a, a configuration or um, I guess maybe you have a specific term. I don't know for you know what Lyra works with, right? But uh, what's the overall workflow look like? I mean, set it up, you know, compare it to what is out there, then make the changes and reconcile. Or you know, that's usually what you kind of see in this this type of uh, declarative model. Yeah, there's a couple of. Uh, so let me walk through just a, a really quick use case and example of of something that we we think is squarely in the sights of what Lyra does. Um, uh, the, I think uh, one of the interesting things is I've been learning about Kubernetes is the sample application that everybody deploys is WordPress. There's like a million WordPress applications out there, and I'm not sure how many people actually need to deploy WordPress as part of their line of work. But it's you know it's representative because it has kind of a you know, frontier and then a database and, and backend. Um, and I think uh, like the the sample Kubernetes applications in in the uh, in their documentation walk through WordPress deployment. So we'll just stick with that. But uh, one thing that's difficult to do inside of a purely Kubernetes-based deployment is if, say, you wanted to run on the Azure Kubernetes service, but instead of using the storage, like provisioning the storage through native Kubernetes um, persistent volumes, you wanted to use the Azure MySQL service because I think that provides a little better, a little higher quality service. You don't have to manage quite such fiddly stuff. You can just get yourself a MySQL instance. If you wanted to do that in a pure Kubernetes way, there's a couple of avenues that you could set up. You could sort of use the service catalog and uh, the open service broker, or one of the things that we've been that I learned about last week and we're looking at is there's a this CNAB standard for cloud native application bundles that will let you express that configuration that's part in Kubernetes and part not a little more natively. But in Lyra, it's really easy to do that. You can use the use that same workflow definition to provision both the Kubernetes parts of that application and get the web server up and running, as well as go through, you know, uh, and and get the uh, Azure MySQL instance uh, provisioned all in one consistent file. So you can do that in, in a single place, and that's kind of the the an example of of pulling those two parts of the world together. And from like. Sure, from a, a sort of development loop as you're getting the thing developed, you can run, Lyra just presents a command line tool that you can get as a Docker container or you can get it as, a, you know, a um, homebrew installation. And the simplest thing to do is just do Lyra apply and then get feed it in that, that workflow. And there's a little more advanced example. If you want to run it as part of a Kubernetes cluster, it will actually connect up and act as a controller that's that's uh, running inside of Kubernetes, and we have a, an operator using the operator pattern that will launch a container running Lyra and leave that running persistently inside of Kubernetes, so that you can just communicate to it over the Kubernetes API and provision your your uh, resources that way. But those are kind of the three sort of phases of of uh, sophistication there, and so and you can do pretty much everything just from the uh, command line interaction with it uh, as you're developing the workflow. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it sounds like, and I'll just, I'll pull a few tidbits out that, that I heard, um, and repeat them back to make sure we got them right. It sounds like, you know, there is going to be inherently ability or inherently able to, uh, you know, work with multiple providers out of a single sort of, you know, configuration, right. 
Um, so your example of being able to say, okay, I'm going to spin up a Kubernetes deployment or, or pod and a, you know, a managed database instance from a cloud provider like an Azure, AWS, whatever. Um, so that's, I think, as we move forward, uh, you know, those sort of, um, I, don't, I don't quite want to call it multi-cloud, maybe multi-provider is a better term. Um, that sort of uh, ability, I think, will be, will be very powerful and, and, and very necessary. Um, uh, and then um, it sounds like, you know, I think really interesting to me is this, this other pattern, too, of, you know, being able to say, hey, we're going to have you running as an operator inside a cluster and and then you know we're just going to communicate over over Kubernetes APIs to it, which I think I want I want to dig into that a little bit more. But before we get there, I was just wondering, um, uh, I, I would I would guess, and and feel free to tell me I'm wrong here, but I would guess that that in in Lyra uh, you you aren't creating a sort of another layer of abstraction on top of an underlying provider. One of the things that I think trips up a lot of folks who are new to infrastructure is code. Uh, when they start reading some of the documentation, is they think that they can write a single configuration, um, and then you know they can apply that against AWS or apply it against Azure and apply it against Google, right? When in reality, it, it doesn't work that way. You've got to have you know sort of resources that are defined that are specific to that particular provider, right? And while it's relatively easy to translate, you know, or, or to convert from an AWS configuration to an Azure or to a Google, whatever the case may be, there is still some effort required there. And so I'm guessing that. It's going to be much the same for uh, configurations that you're writing to be applied via Lyra. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the interesting lessons that's come out of the last you know several years of development, not just in Puppet, but I think Ter- Terraform and Ansible has a similar approach too, where those abstractions, if you try to you know make a multi multi event or a cross vendor cloud abs- uh, abstraction, they end up being so leaky that you have to rewrite it anyways. So you might as well just start off from the beginning knowing that you're going to deploy onto Azure versus AWS and write configuration that's tuned to that provider and and pick a different one if you want to change providers. I don't think it's actually all that valuable to have a cross you know, cross-platform abstraction for, say, a load balancer instance or DNS entries or uh, um, security groups and those kinds of things because it, that abstraction removes all of the valuable features that the individual providers have built into those into their their offerings. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. I, I think that um, the the attempt to create these sort of provider-independent abstractions is what stymied, you know, efforts in previous generations of, of tools from really gaining the sort of traction just because it was so hard to f- try and find a model that both captured the common commonalities across these platforms, but also exposed enough of the uniqueness to not make it, you know, a, a uh, lowest common denominator sort of thing, right? Because when you do make it a lowest common denominator sort of thing, then you're right, you lose the, you know, a lot of the value that an individual provider can can actually give you right. Um, you're you're limiting yourself to you know common uh, methods and, and objects that all the providers have, and I think it just it becomes too unwieldy. So I do agree that I think it's it's really important that uh, tools like Lyra and others, you know, don't don't try to tackle that at least not yet. Maybe maybe down the road, but that's that's again another discussion for another. Yeah, day. if the abstraction <laughs> if the abstraction is you know it, it, with the goal of avoiding vendor lock in, you can do that uh, through the similar mechanism through using the infrastructure as code tooling. 
it's just not going to be the exact same file that you feed into the different providers. I think that's you know un- unrealistic. And yeah, like, like you said, it restricts you to the lowest common denominator. One interesting uh, bit, a, a part of Lyra's approach for that is that uh, we have a tool that came from the Puppet ecosystem, but we have a sort of a clean room Go implementation of uh, a tool called Hira, which is Puppet's uh, mechanism for injecting data into configuration. So Hira just uses a hierarchy, hence the name of YAML files, and will look up particular values to inject into uh, to, to fill out variables in kind of a most specific to least specific order. So you can have overrides for individual, say, nodes or availability zones, and then override those, uh, I'm sorry, have those be overridden by more specific uh, YAML and then fall through down to the least specific or a common default set of defaults. So in that mechanism, you can reuse some of that data and have the, say, the the characteristics like how much memory an instance ought to have and those kinds of things available in data, and they just get looked up by two different code implementations. So you are getting reuse and you are getting portability, but the implementation details in the workflow file are specific to the provider that you're using. Just a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, NetRounds. NetRounds software actively tests and verifies that your network services are working like you expect them to. NetRounds uses synthetic testing to get real-time, end-to-end metrics from the data plane so you can see exactly how an application or service is running. Unlike passive monitoring tools such as SNMP, Syslog, or Probes, NetRounds provides active assurance that you're meeting SLAs for end users and customers. With active testing, you get immediate visibility into reachability, throughput, VoIP quality, packet loss, retransmissions, and other essential metrics. You can track KPIs, get critical insights for troubleshooting, and test configuration changes and new services to ensure they work like they're supposed to. NetRounds uses lightweight software agents that you can deploy in the data center, in the campus, at branch and remote offices, and in the cloud to get end-to-end measurements. A controller lets you manage agents, initiate tests, and tie into automation tool chains to integrate active assurance into your operational processes. To learn more about NetRounds, listen to Heavy Networking Episode 441 and go to netrounds.com slash packetpushers. While you're there, you can download a white paper, read a cheat sheet, and snag a free t-shirt. That's netrounds.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the podcast. All right. Yeah, I'm familiar with Hira. Um, it was, I played with it back in the day when I was messing with Puppet. Um, didn't get a ton into it, but I did uh, you know, realize sort of the, the value of, of pulling some of the use case, let's say, specific data, right, um, to help make the, the code be a, a tad more portable because then you could just change the values and get a different result yeah. you know, out, of, out of the similar sort of thing. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about state because invariably when we talk about infrastructure as code tools, we always have to come back to the idea of state. And and you touched on this earlier in that you know um, you know Plumi has a model where they they have a SaaS offering that sort of you know the 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 tooling is is sort of centered around this idea of, of connecting to that that service and and you know retrieving state or storing state or whatever the case may be. Terraform obviously takes a you know a dramatically different approach. I think I'll. I think I've heard about HashiCorp maybe offering some sort of remote state engine, or maybe they did and canceled it. I don't remember, but um, you know that's a, a much more, I would say, a, a do-it-yourself sort of approach, right? Um, what? Uh, how are you guys approaching that with uh, with Lyra? Yeah, we call it identity, uh, an identity database or identity service. That's kind of the mapping between the workflows definition of what those pieces ought to be out into the their 
identity in the real world. We told it to create a, a VPC that had these characteristics, and we get back from the Amazon API, API a particular VPC ID. And the mapping between those two things is kept in an identity database. Right now, as I mentioned, that uses local state uh, for uh, a local database file for doing that. It's just a real simple kind of key value database, similar to what Terraform does. And one of the things that we heard from Terraform users that we've spoken to, and that and, and my somewhat limited and outdated, I, I, I freely admit, but um, my, my use of Terraform was uh, the state file ends up needing surgery a lot and... Uh, uh, I think somebody I spoke to said that it's it was a rite of passage at their company to have destroyed everything by accidentally doing something with the Terraform state file. We want that to not happen with for for Lyra and just make it so that it's it's a you know it's a data store that you can op, you can read values out of and uh, operate on programmatically, but you shouldn't have to open it up in a text editor and edit it manually. Over time, I expect we will want to keep that in a service, and we have a few kind of roadmap-style tickets on this in the project, and I'd be curious in, in hearing from listeners what they want to do there. I think we want to take advantage as much as possible for um, Kubernetes APIs and services that provide those kinds of uh, that kind that kind of storage. I don't know if we can completely leverage etcd uh, that's that's built into Kubernetes for that, but some kind of service that lives alongside of the controller or the operator that that's running the Lyra code and can provide the kind of availability guarantees that um, you'd you'd hope to get out of out of the state files. Yeah, the the idea of um, you know the the state files being very fragile. Um, to your comments about Terraform, you know. That led to a, an entire podcast episode, actually, with a with an SRE. He and I worked together uh, at at Heptio, and uh, his his approach to protecting uh, infrastructure from from that sort of issue. He called it defensive Terraform. So, listeners, if you're interested in in uh, you know protecting yourself against some of these state related issues, I think it was episode uh, 27, if I'm not mistaken. But just check out packetpushers.net and uh, look for the the episode with Kurt Michael. Um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely right. You know, if that's Terraform, if that Terraform state file gets corrupted, then then you've got issues, right? Um, so, you know, is there, and, and maybe there isn't, um, you know, is there anything sort of specific that you guys adopted that you, you know, feel like helps you improve upon the, like the, the protection, if you will, of that state file as, as opposed to, you know, maybe the approach that Terraform took? Uh at the moment, no, it's pretty basic at, at time, to be honest. Uh, if it turns out that we need a lot of, you know, a, a lot more sophistication on that, I, again, I'd love to hear what people that are using it out in the real world, like what kind of cap trade-offs they'd like to see for that and, and if there's other technology that we could make use of. It's pretty it's pretty simple at this point, to be honest, and we just wanted to sort of get, get things started and start off with the principles that yeah, it should be you know as available as the service itself. It shouldn't be a point of a failure, and it, and it shouldn't be user mungeable in the way that uh, you know a hand edited file would be. Yeah, that makes sense. I can I can throw my my vote in right now for for one thing. I'd love to see, and that is um, you know going back to the conversation I had with with Kurt about defensive Terraform. You know, approach a lot of people take is to split up that Terraform state file, and then use you know Terraform remote state commands to kind of sort of pull it in dynamically. Um, but in so doing, what happens is that breaks down the graph of dependencies mm. so that you have to manage those dependencies yourself, right? So if I say I'm going to break out my compute state from my network state, then, you know, I have to pull that network state into the compute state and, 
because now I'm dealing with different state files and such, then I can't just you know, do a single apply, right? I have to apply one and then go apply the other. So it would be awesome if you guys had a solution for that. That's that's really interesting. So it sounds like you would almost need a uh, a meta tool to string together those different bits of the infrastructure in a in the consistent fashion. And I wonder if uh, if if you could just do that in a in a workflow. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's like a you know an extra phase that happens where it you know it goes and looks through a bunch of different you know configs and assembles a state file to pull together the whole picture of what I don't know. But I'll leave it to the geniuses that are working on Lyra to figure that out. I just cast my vote as a user. Right on. <laughs> I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Kubernetes use case because that's uh, obviously Kubernetes is a key focus for me, and uh, I think it's fascinating the idea of of running you know sort of a, a controller in a cluster with with Lyra running and an operator. I'm assuming that you guys are are you know defining some custom resource definitions so that you know people could could you know a kubectl apply you know some piece of YAML which actually then goes and talks to the Lyra. Um, you know, operator, is that kind of the idea or? Yeah, exactly. That's what? exactly right. Yeah. We, it's built on the operator SDK and it's built as a go operator directly. So rather than using, there's a couple of higher level, uh, abstractions on the op in the operator framework as it's currently spec'd out and built, uh, I guess, Coros and, and Red Hat are kind of the main drivers behind that for, um, uh, for, for OpenShift. But, um, that they, in addition to the Helm operator, and there's one that's an Ansible operator. You can just write one directly in Go, which is what how how Lyra is written. And as you said, it build builds a container, launches it inside of the uh, cluster, and then you register a, a CRD. That's uh, right now it's a pretty generic one. It's just a, a CRD that registers a workflow entity, and then you can submit workflows to it that you can. That, that then lets you instantiate it, and the controller does the work of going out and actually creating the the resources that the workflow says, and then you can you know continue to query it uh, for status to get back the information that was created by the result of of having submitted a workflow request to it. So that's really fascinating. I guess the the benefit there is that we can leverage you know the the built in declarative model of the Kubernetes APIs, right, and the fact that there is this. Uh, reconciliation loop that happens, right? Um, to then extend, to, and, and we can extend that into basically anything that Lyra can communicate with, right? So as opposed to working with, um, you know, ha have, as opposed to having to, to you know, write a whole ton of, of, of custom CRDs if we wanted to, to, you know, reach out to all these various pieces, we write this workflow CRD, and that workflow CRD is handled by the Lyra controller, which then goes out and uses Lyra and its connections to the providers and so on and so forth to then instantiate, you know, or to perform imperative actions or whatever the case may be. Um, and then, you know, it's tracking that state, right? And and uh, and then reporting back to the Kubernetes control plane to then say, oh, okay, yeah, this has been this has been realized, right? You know, we've we've reconciled, you know, your desired state, which was to do workflow X with the actual state, which means now workflow X has been executed and these, these objects and, and entities and infrastructure, you know, actually exist. Is that, you know, a good summary? That's exactly right. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of a different application to, of the operator pattern, I think, than some of the other ones that are out there. For the most part, uh, it seems like the operators that, at least that I've, that I've poked at 
are, are for things like um, like etcd or FluentDB and those kinds of things where there's an operator which man which provisions and manages the life cycle of a particular service usually one that lives inside of uh, inside of the kubernetes cluster so you can say things like when there's a new pod created make sure that there's FluentD that's uh, associated with that pod and the operator is responsible for managing that mapping and this one's a little bit it's a little bit sideways to that because it knows about lots of different kinds of, of infrastructure and creates uh, creates them not necessarily automatically upon general control plane events, but when you're when you've submitted a workflow specifically to it, and it can go go out and create those. So it's an interesting pattern. I'm actually really keen to see if folks take advantage of it and start using it that way. I, I'm yeah, I'm pretty fascinated by the work that's going on in uh, in operators generally, and I hope that the pattern sort of gains currency and and becomes useful for uh, for Lyra users as well. Yeah, I mean, without having actually you know put my hands on the tech, which I would I would love to do, and and I will do. Um, it, it just has to get on my list of things to do. Um, uh, my initial assessment is that you know this this could be enormously helpful uh, because you're right. Most of the time, when you look at a controller and operator, this it's very sort of you know inwardly focused, right? Um, and it doesn't uh, doesn't really affect sort of things that are outside, uh, sitting outside of Kubernetes. But if we had a mechanism like Lyra, which in an, in and of itself had the ability to handle these sort of declarative and imperative workflow tasks, right? Go create, in, uh, you know, an auto-scaling group, populate it with this, da-da-da, whatever. Then we, we bring that same sort of declarative approach and, and the, the, you know, the reconciliation, you know, control loop that Kubernetes uses for objects inside the cluster. We, we bring that to objects now outside the cluster, yep. right? Um, and it really, it, it like, it now takes the, the sort of the, the, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's sort of the range, if you will, or the breadth of what Kubernetes is capable of doing now suddenly extends that much farther than it was before, right, um, in a very, very interesting way. So, yeah, I, I think it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. I can't wait to actually um, get my hands on it and, and play around with it. Yeah, um, I, I should be be clear, too, that this is not something that we you know sort of came up with ourselves. There's some prior art in this area that I think is pretty interesting and that we, we that is some validation for just that approach that you talked about and why people would find that useful. But uh, there's a... A ter- a actual Terraform operator that is um, was built in and is under the uh, Rancher Labs namespace and sort of follows a similar pattern. And I think the the Ansible operator is also kind of interesting. It's or, or Ansible style operators, even if you're not using them directly. Uh, but the ones that are built into the operator SDK sort of let you make a mapping between things that happen in the cluster, events that happen in the cluster, or if you you know speak direct, directly to it with CRDs that it registers, and Ansible playbooks that live on on the container that's running as the you know it, as the controller inside of the cluster. So with that, you can it's pretty much unlimited what you can do. Anything that that. Uh, that that controller has access to, and that you have an Ansible playbook for, and have created that mapping between events and what you what you run in response to that event, uh, you can you can use Ansible to do that. So that that was definitely some inspiration and some prior art for 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 why why we thought people would find this useful as well. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for mentioning that. I appreciate it. I'll uh, I'll dig up some links and include those uh, in the show notes, listeners, so you can uh, take a look at that stuff. Um, we are, you know, uh, drawing near to their or my self-imposed um, uh, time frame for podcasts, trying to keep it reasonable to consume. 
I'm thinking about, you know, one of the primary goals for the podcast is sort of to help make it easier for folks to, to learn this stuff. I was encouraged um, to see that you guys are offering a Docker container, which just makes it e- really easy for people to consume. You know, not a lot of dependencies and stuff they have to get up and running on their laptop. They, if they have Docker, you know, for Windows, Docker for Mac, Docker on their Linux box, whatever, they can just pull the image and, and start playing with it, uh, which is great. Um, are there any other sort of prerequisites um, that you would say, you know, hey, if you are a listener and you want to start playing with this, it's helpful if you already knew X? Mm. Well, the, it depends how what what you want to do with it. I would say the the first uh, so certainly yeah gets the Docker container is going to be the easiest way to get started. Uh, it's up on Docker Hub. We have the same namespace on Hub as we do on on Docker Hub as we do on GitHub. It's just Lira Proj, short for Lira Project, uh, and we keep that updated with with builds as they come out. In order to actually get started building for it, it, there's kind of two paths that you can take. The first one is to go just start off with the YAML descriptions or a, of a workflow. And we have a bunch of examples. Probably the best one to get started if you just want to copy pasta is we made a, um, a fake service that's called Kubernetes. It's like Kubernetes, but it doesn't do anything. That kind of is a test workflow that's inside of the uh, inside of the repository, and that exercises most of the parts of the engine, and is also like massively commented. The devs did an amazing amazing job of sort of describing each of the fields and each of the pieces and how they fit together. So you can kind of follow along with that Kubernetes workflow and figure out how to adapt that to your own uh, deployment use case. So that's probably the easiest thing to get started. If you are already a uh, TypeScript whiz, there are TypeScript examples that also are heavily commented and that use uh, some of the more advanced features. So, for example, if you want to make heavy use of imperative actions, that's going to be much more a TypeScript thing than a YAML thing. But uh, just for getting started, I would suggest starting out with the Kubernetes.yaml and see how far you get with that and then uh, ramp up as you need to. Gotcha. Great. I love the uh, love the Kubernetes thing. That's, that's, that's absolutely hilarious. Yep. I thought so too. <laughs> um, great. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense that for um, for folks who you know just want to get started quickly to that you know to use a YAML definition. Obviously, as you mentioned, if you are already familiar with TypeScript, um, and I am not, um, then you could start there. Uh, but uh, otherwise, now, I know you mentioned that Lyra was written in, in GoLang. Do you guys anticipate that you'll you know further on in the project just to distribute some you know some binaries for easy installation or? Yeah, um, the the I have a mostly working homebrew uh, setup that uh, d- does have pre-built binaries for it, so that's kind of the the um, one of the the primary targets. But um, it's pretty easy to produce builds out of out of Travis CI on GitHub. So uh, if there's additional platform requests, we're, we're totally amenable to doing that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I just it's been my experience, you know, that like one of the things I love about you know so many of the Go projects is that you know it's it's generally super easy to spit out a binary without a lot of dependencies. Right. Um, and, uh, and that makes it easy for folks to consume. Again, I do like the idea of having that Docker container so that it's just, you know, simple Docker pull or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but options, you know, people like options. So that's cool. Um, all right. Uh, this is awesome. I, I really am excited about, uh, what you guys are doing here and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the project, uh, continue to evolve and grow as we get ready to wrap up or any, any sort of like 
closing thoughts you want to share with readers, you know, any sort of like, hey, you know, don't forget about this key thing or whatever, something like that. And if you don't have anything, that's okay. I guess, I mean, the main thing I would, I would say is just please uh, engage with the, with the project, even if it's like, Hey, I tried to do this and it blew up on me, or I don't understand what's going on here. We're really interested in finding, you know, get, getting in touch with people that have the, the kinds of problems that Lyra is intended to solve. And particularly if you're familiar with some of the other infrastructure as code tools that are adjacent to this or work in a similar space, but you're, you're having, you're not hundred percent happy with how they work or you wish they did things a little bit differently. There is still kind of nascent and young enough that there's a lot of opportunity to influence the direction that it goes. And, uh, so yeah, I would love to, to hear from you. Um, like I said, we have both the, the GitHub issues and the, the roadmap and everything that's open underneath the project. We have a Twitter handle, which is also L Y R a proj, Lyra proj. And uh, we have a pretty active community that's on the the Puppet community Slack uh, that people can drop in and ask questions in real time. So if you sign up for uh, puppet.slack.com and and um, get get online there if you want to chat with us real time. Perfect. Okay. Great. Uh, thanks, Eric. Um, and um, uh, Eric, any sort of on, online contact info you want to share for yourself in case folks want to you know, follow you online? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm Apuk on Twitter, A-H-P-O-O-K. And I also, uh, in the interest or in the sort of in the spirit of running this project, like a little startup-y kind of project, I'm also behind the, the Lyra Twitter account. So that's pretty much me just tweeting stuff out. And um, for some reason, you want to revert to email. I'm just Eric, E-R-I-C at puppet.com. Okay. Great. Perfect. Thanks so much, Eric. Really appreciate it. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We hope that uh, today's discussion on Lyra was useful and helpful to you um, as you are um, out uh, trying to keep abreast of all the developments that are happening in the technology space. And maybe you're getting ready to explore some infrastructure as code projects or um, or a use case for your own organization. I think it might be a good idea to consider um, uh, giving, uh, giving Lyra a whirl and providing some feedback to Eric and his team, as he's mentioned. Um, even if it's just, you know, Hey, I tried to do this and it doesn't work. Um, as always, you know, the goal for the podcast is to try and share some useful, helpful information to help you along with your, your journey of learning. Um, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, you're welcome to hit me on Twitter. Uh, I'm the host, Scott Lowe at Scott underscore Lowe. Um, uh, like Eric, I'm, you know, sort of the man behind the at FSJ podcast, Twitter handle for the full stack journey podcast as well. So Feel free to use either of those. And um, as always, we'll have uh, this show live with notes and links to resources available on packetpushers.net. We'd appreciate if you could uh, take a minute, if you enjoy the show, to give us a review or a rating on whatever platform you use to, to, to get it, whether it be iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever that may be. And uh, thanks again for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.